This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Marion Munley from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, I've known Marion for years. Uh, we met at the Trial Lawyers College years and years ago, and we see each other all the time through the uh, AAJ Trucking Litigation Group. She's actually our incoming chairperson. She's a great lawyer. She's also a very active speaker. We see her uh, across the country at different conferences. She's got multiple seven and even eight-figure case victories. She's really modest and doesn't like to talk about them, but she's really one of the best lawyers in the country. So I'd really like to welcome Marilyn Munley to talk to us today. Today's guest on Trial Lawyer Nation is trial lawyer Marion Munley. Marion, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, for the few people out there that haven't heard of you yet, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am the oldest of six children. I have a law practice with my five brothers and sisters. We're all lawyers. We practice in Pennsylvania. Um, our offices are in northeastern Pennsylvania, which is Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, the Poconos. But we do practice all around the state. And I love trying cases, and I love helping people. So tell me a little bit about um, what makes you unique as a trial lawyer. Well, um, I think that, you know, one of the things that um, makes me unique, at least I think, which you know explains um, uh, somewhat about myself, is I am a fourth-generation working mother. So going back four generations, all of the women that were in my life worked outside of the home. And I think that that had a very um, profound influence on me. Um, and it also made me appreciate um, not only my own grand great-grandmother and grandmother's circumstance and my mom's circumstance, but also, you know, really the position of women everywhere who have, who have to work and have to raise children. So, so you, my – You said – Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Your great-grandmother and your grandmother both – grandmothers both work? Right. My great-grandmother actually ran a store. My great-grandfather ran a bar. So they had a oh, wow. bar and a store in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And so she, my great-grandmother ran the store, and my grandfather, great-grandfather ran the bar. And then um, my grandmother's, um, my paternal grandmother was widowed when she was 40 years old, and she had two small children. And my maternal grandmother was widowed when she was 32 years old, and she had three oh small children. So both of my grandmothers had to work. They And this happened in the 40s. So my 
grandmothers had to go out and work. My one grandmother, my um, dad's mom, she became active in politics. My grandfather was a state representative who died in office. And at that time, the tradition was that um, the widow would replace um, the deceased representative until the next election. So my grandmother was expected, or they expected her to fill out his remaining term, and then you know someone else would run. But my grandmother um, decided that she would keep running, and she did. She ran for nine terms in the State House of Representatives. She was when she started, she was one of three women in the house. She described herself as a community activist and a labor organizer. And she went on to write a, a bill in 1959 which passed. Um, uh, and the bill uh, was for equal pay for women. She also went on, she was elected by both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. She served as Secretary of the House of Representatives, which was a position held by Benjamin Franklin at one time. So oh, wow. She had a great career, and she was a great, strong role model. Well, absolutely. I can I could see how that would inspire you and uh, almost make you expect to, to do a lot in life. Uh, it's interesting. Both my grandmothers worked too. Uh, one was widowed with eleven kids and was a school teacher, and then went back and got her master's and became a college uh, teacher. And then the other one was in, worked in newspapers. So maybe that has a lot to do with my attitude towards uh, trying to promote women uh, in trial law. Absolutely, I would think that it did. Eleven children. Wow. My my yeah, other she grandmother. Was an incredible woman. <laughs> I mean, they had to be. My other grandmother, my maternal grandmother, went to work. She actually worked in the county courthouse mm-hmm. um, after my grandfather died. She got a job in the county courthouse, and she worked there for the rest of her career. And she also, on top of that, she she ran a small dinette. So when she wasn't working in the courthouse, she was working at her dinette, or they called it a dinette. It was like a little restaurant um Mm-hmm. that served lunches and, um, like, hamburgers and stuff, dinners. So, and she was really, I mean, she lived until she was age 96, and she was an incredibly strong woman who had just so many tragedies in her life, and she's just such a great example of, you know, she always said, um, smile and the world smiles with you, cry and you cry alone. So, And she wow. lived that, so... Well, then you get out of law school then and uh, ended up in a field that unfortunately is still, you know, fairly male-dominated when you look specifically at plaintiff's personal injury law. I mean, you go look at bigger law firms, you see a little bit more, uh, at least in the associate ranks, a little bit more going towards the equal, and even the partnership ranks. But at plaintiff's firms, we still, for whatever reason, aren't doing a very good job of not only getting women in, but getting women in positions of prominence and you know you you seem to be an exception to that i mean there's other you know randy mcginn lisa blue there's some other great female trial lawyers out there so it's not impossible but it's still given that it's 2017 uh you know it's ridiculous how few we have when i you know walk around a seminar and see how few of the speakers and how few of even the audiences are women 
Uh, what was it like, I guess, when you first came out? Uh, you know, you've grown up in an environment where, you know, it's the norm or it's expected for women to not just work, but, I mean, gosh, your grandmother was so prominent in the House of Representatives uh, to, to achieve. And, and was the world like that when you got out, ready for it? Well, unfortunately, um, uh, the as you said, the uh, the trial bar is um, male dominated, um, even today. And it, you know, we know that um, at least seventy nine percent. I think the ABA ABA statistic is that seventy nine percent of um, first chairs at trial are men, particularly in tort cases. Um, so we're trying to change that. Um, in fact, the study, um, first chairs at trial, more women needed, was put out by um, the ABA, and a friend of mine, Bobby Liebenberg, um, was a co-chair of the study. And we know that more women have to be groomed and mentored to become first chairs. There are women out there that are very capable um, and would be great trial lawyers, they're just not getting the opportunity. And so that all begins with, you know, mentoring and trying to help young lawyers navigate as to what to do with their careers. And, and that seems to be the hard, I think, the hard thing. Um, what, what do you do? Um, how do you promote yourself? How do you educate yourself? How do you... Um, position yourself so that you can be the first chair at trial. So it's very disappointing that even in this day and age, um, that is what is going on. And I I hope in some, some small manner to be able to change that. Well, you've, uh, you've definitely been first chair in trial uh, plenty of times, I would think. Uh, can you tell us about a trial that you're particularly proud of? Sure. Um, yes, I was lucky. I was fortunate, and I got when I got out of law school, um, I began. Uh, I did a clerkship, and then I began trying cases. And my smaller my cases were smaller cases. And at that time, a lot of cases involving rear end collisions with, you know, not a lot of damage, but um, certainly clients who had been injured and who had very real problems as a result of the crash. Um, needed my help, and so I got a lot of experience on those type of cases. Um, and of course, as I as I gained experience and got more well known within the community and um, by other lawyers, I would I got to try um, larger cases. And one of the cases that um, I remember trying um, was a case of a woman who was. Uh, her father, I was representing her, her father had been, he was a uh, retired teacher, and he had the habit, or I guess he had the, it was his ha hobby. So it was his hobby to go out to little flea markets and purchase things and collect, and then he would set up his own little booth um, and on the day of the accident, it was right after the 4th of July, and he had he had been um, on the road. He was going from one uh, flea market to another, and at that time, a tractor-trailer um, 
which had been on the road and nonstop. The driver had been driving for three days straight without any rest. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he came. It was in the middle of the day. It was a beautiful day, and he just ran into the rear of our client. And then what happened was the truck actually got attached to the back end of the car, and the truck was trying to rid, like, rid itself of the car, going back and forth and back and forth. And when it did that, it threw the car off and into a concrete bridge abutment. Car caught fire, and the driver kept driving and drove down the road. The oh my um, gosh. there were had two high school students. Um, were behind, and they actually tried to get our client out of the car, but they were too late. They they couldn't get into the car, and unfortunately, you know, he died in the fire. That case was, ve- you know, it was very, um, it was it was hard fought. Um, the driver was a um, uh, he had lived he was. Um, not an American citizen. He was in the country, and he was basically taken advantage of as well by the people that employed him. And you know, so he was paid next to nothing. Um, and his job was to drive back and forth from New York to California with produce. And he skirted all the rules and regulations. Um, the state police were able to piece together his itinerary and they um with receipts that were found in the vehicle he was arrested and charged um and the police did an excellent job at um you know putting together the hours of service and how he had violated well, the hours of service that's unusual but that's that's a good thing for that case very unusual but a very good thing yes we had another case where we had a a young uh, 22-year-old. He was working at a warehouse. He was on the night shift. His boss asked him to stay a little bit later. He did. And as he was leaving, what happened was he was driving north on a two-lane highway. A tractor trailer was coming south. The driver claims that he dropped an apple on the floor, and he bent down to pick up the apple. And when he did, he crossed the median, went into the northbound side of traffic where my client was traveling, um, hit him at an angle, and then w- the truck he was driving went off into the woods. At that time, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning, a, another tractor trailer came along, was overdriving its headlights, and ran into my client who was disabled in the right lane of the interstate. So that was a very interesting case, and my client lived. He had a very serious head injury, but he lived. Mm. And so that was, uh, you know, that was very satisfying to help the client. The driver, that the second driver, felt that he was not at fault, and his lawyers, however. You know, we had done discovery and found that he had been involved in a similar accident where somebody had died and that really he had no training on nighttime driving or the distance it would take to stop a truck. So. And how do those cases turn out? 
Well, they they turned out very successfully for us, and it was you know we just did a lot of work. We I did a lot of research. Mm-hmm. I I hired experts. I talked to the experts. Um, you know what what you need to do to um, when you have these type of cases. And you do a lot of trucking, don't you? Yes, I do. I happen to do a lot of trucking. We have a right here in Scranton. We have a number of interstate highways that converge. So we have trucks going north up to Canada and south to Florida. And then we have trucks going west to Chicago and California. And then we have trucks going east to New York City. So there is a lot of truck travel in this area. And unfortunately, um, we see a lot of um, rogue drivers and rogue companies who don't follow rules and who don't, you know, they they, um, they put nothing, no budget and no money into their safety budget, um, wow. and they put cars on, the trucks on the road, and they go. And you speak a lot on trucking, too, don't you? Yes, I do. I'm chair-elect of the um, American Association for Justice Truck Litigation Group, and I've been fortunate that I've been asked to speak um, over many years on issues pertaining to tractor-trailer collisions. You know, one thing I find interesting, and you and I were talking about it a little bit, you know, I'm going to give an example. You know, male lawyers, you say, tell me about when your cases say, well, this was my $20 million verdict, or this was my $1 million verdict. And, they'll, you know, they'll shoot out the number right away. But when I ask you, you respond with a story, and you never even mention a number. I wonder, is that a man thing or a woman thing, or is it cultural, different parts of the country thing? What do you think it is? Uh, I, well, I don't know, and it, it could be um, it could be also a Marion Munley thing. I don't, you know, yeah. um, I you know sometimes I, I I think I said to you I know people who will knock me down to tell me what their latest settlement was or verdict. They don't say hi, how are you? They say let me tell you about my monster verdict or my monster yeah. settlement. So, I mean, I guess I tend to be modest, which is um, uh, sometimes not a, you know, I guess not a good thing for business promotion. But I also notice, you know, I also know that, you know, sometimes people don't want you to be in in your face with um, with that sort of thing either. So. Yeah, it's something I struggle with. It's like you you do need to let people know you're doing well because you want to get that next referral or that next case, but then you don't want to come off as a braggart, and you, know, you don't want to feel like a braggart. Uh, and there's plenty of braggarts in our profession, uh, some of which have never even tried a case. But that's exactly. another story. <laughs> exactly, and I struggle with that too. But, you know, when you see, and and I see quite frequently, I see um, other other members of the bar who are very forthright about um, their experience, and sometimes when it's that experience is not as I recall it. In other words, I think it's a little bit embellished. So, I mean, yeah. I like to say that I'm I'm board certified. Um, I've been board certified since 1996. I was the second woman in Pennsylvania to be board certified in civil trial advocacy by the National Board of Trial Advocates. I'm very proud of that. I'm a member of the Inter- International Society of Barristers. Um, I'm a member of ABOTA. So I'm very, very proud that, you know, I do back, you know, my, I, I, I put my, I, I don't know what the phrase is, but, you know, I am experienced and I have the credentials to back it up. So, you know, I have the trials. You're not out there tooting your own horn all the time, though. 
Right. So I, I, yeah. So I need to do a better job of that. Well, it's just one thing that I've noticed. You know, like I said, I, I see lawyers get cases referred to them that have never, someone never even tried a case, and definitely haven't handled, you know, major cases in that area just because they're really good at self promotion. And then I see someone like you that's, you know, people in the know know how what a badass you are. Uh, people in the know know that, you know, you've, you're accomplished, you've had all these, and you're recognized by all these groups of highly accomplished lawyers. And yet sometimes the referral, when someone needs help on a case, they end up calling someone else. You know, I'm just trying to think, how, how do we change that? Is it, you know, as a, a group, because, you know, you want to get, if our goals are to help clients and then to, you know, hopefully make it more expensive for unsafe trucking companies so that it'll be cheaper to be safe than it will be to save money, be unsafe. Um, because they, they have to pay the price when they're unsafe and it gets uncovered. You know, we want people to end up with good lawyers. Um, I mean, I wonder how we do that uh, to make sure people like you get more good cases because you're capable of doing the good work. Well, I guess I, it starts with educating your clients and educating people who may come to you and ask. Because people today are more sophisticated they, than they are when I started to practice and so when people come to me and they ask, well, why should I hire you instead of somebody down the street or somebody in the next state? Right. And I do say because, you know, I mean, look at my credentials. I, you know, I am board certified. I'm listed in the best lawyers in America. I'm in the top 50 women in Pennsylvania. Um, I couldn't get into these things without having, you know, trials that that went to verdict, um, trials that, you know, where – trials like the type of cases that um, the clients had. But I think it's, it definitely starts with, um, you know, not only education, but also educating um, pub the public. Also, um, you know, when I refer cases, I try to refer them to the best qualified lawyer that I know. Um, there are very many women who have had a lot of, a lot of trials that, like you said, don't have, don't get the recognition that they should, and sometimes um, people out there think that that maybe that because the male counterpart is a male, he definitely must have as many or more cases, and that's not always correct. So I'm hoping that, you know, the board certification means something to somebody. Like, we have to tell clients you've got to choose wisely. There is a lot of people out there that claim to be something they're not. So choose, choose carefully, choose wisely. Yeah, I also think we need to, you know, if people aren't comfortable tooting their own horn, you know, toot each other's horns a little bit, just to let the world know that, you know, people like you are out there doing incredible work and are good lawyers. And and like yourself, Michael, you and I met at Trial Lawyers College and. You know, you were on staff at, at Trialers College. I was on staff at Trialers College, and you know that really shows to me that you have the passion and the drive, and just the interest in the law that to want to be constantly learning about you know new trends, new techniques, um, see how somebody else in another state handles a similar issue. Um, and I, I really does, I really get a lot of, um, you know, passion from knowing that there's other lawyers out there like yourself and, and others who really want to continue to learn no matter how long they've been doing this. And that's because that's how I am. I mean, I 
go to a lot of CLEs. I teach at a lot of CLEs. But I'm always looking to improve, always looking to find new ways to help my clients. Absolutely. To get the, just, yeah, to get the justice that they deserve. Well, let's say there's, you know, either like a young man or young woman who just got a law school or even someone that's been doing something else, uh, some other area of law, and wants to become, you know, a great, let's say, personal injury lawyer, because you do more than just trucking, so I'm not going to say a great trucking lawyer, but a a great uh, plaintiff's personal injury lawyer. What is, you know, what have you learned? What advice would you give, and how do you go down that path? Um, You're right. I do do more than trucking cases. I do some product liability cases. I do some medical malpractice cases. And I do get asked quite frequently, and I do have some new lawyers here in my firm working for me and with me. And the first thing I tell them is that it's a lot of hard work. I mean, you have to be willing to put in the hours. You have to be willing to put aside your basically, um, you know, uh, your nights and weekends, in order to learn the business. It's it's a multifaceted business. I mean, not only is it um, trying to get clients to come in the door to hire you, but also then to, to achieve the right results. So getting the right result means, you know, just putting tons and tons of hours. And I think someone said for every hour in the courtroom, that's 10 to 12 hours outside the courtroom of preparation. So, you know, you need you need experience. Um, you need to be, you know, basically humble. I mean, I've never assumed that I know everything. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. You just got to be up, you know, you just got to be really, um, you know, you can't be afraid. You can't back down. And, a lot of people have grit, um, and that's what I think carries the day. You can be brilliant. You can have graduated from this great school, but at the end of the day, you really have to have that, what I, you know, what we call grit. So, um, so I tell I tell young lawyers, look, if you want to get into personal injury, it's a very very satisfying part of the law. I love what I do. I love my clients. But at the same time, um, it's a lot of work, and you've got it's a continual study. It's a lifetime study of the law, and you you've got to always be interested in learning and reading and meeting with other lawyers and being part of bar associations or trial bar associations. And you know that's that's why I do what I do, um, and I'm I'm always learning. I don't know and if that answers your question. That does, actually. And, and what kind of, you know, a sense it's not, it can't just be about the money because, I mean, I've done the math. If you want to make money, settle cases cheap and move to the next one and don't do very much work on any of them. Um, but that's not what what you do. It's not what I do. What What is it that drives you to try to, to, to practice at that high level, to always be learning? I think what drives me is just my, my clients. Um, I want to give – back to my clients. I think that they deserve the best of me. I think that I can only be at my best when I'm continually learning. I can't be, I mean, you can't be stagnant in this, in this profession. You always have to be learning because if you're not learning, um, you know, you're not giving your clients the very best that you could. Um, 
you know, if you were in it for the money, I wouldn't be working like every single day and working nights and weekends and, you know, um, so it's not money that drives me, it's justice and doing the best job that I can for my clients and, you know, like I said, I just love the law and I love learning. I want to kind of turn to something, and you and I actually had uh, had breakfast because we were going to do this last week when we were both at that seminar in Florida, and then we ended up talking so long we didn't have time to record anything, uh, which was nice. Uh, but I wanted to ask one thing you brought up. You said when you first started, there'd be like um, different boards or different associations. would be like one slot for a woman, and you, no one said it, but you knew it. You'd have to be fighting with all the other women to get it. And Has that changed? Yes, that has changed. Like first, when I first got out of law school, and I got out of law school in 1986. So when I first got out, and you know, I joined trial lawyers. I I joined like the Pennsylvania Association for Justice and the local bar associations, and you know, I didn't know like what committees I should be on, but as I sort of um, got involved and realized, you know, what, what were the, the good committees and what I should be doing, I realized that there was always, like, one position reserved for a woman. And so there might be many women that were active, but there was no chance that there was going to be more than one woman picked for um, the plum assignment or the plum committee. And so, you know, it it was um, it was a situation where you actually were not competing um, with the men and women, you were just competing with the women for the one spot. And I've, that has changed a lot since over the years. I mean, when I first got out, got out there was, you know, we didn't have um, a female president of our, our Pennsylvania Association for Justice. I don't think at that time that AAJ had a women, woman president. Um, so I know I don't believe at that time the Pennsylvania Bar Association had a woman president. Now that has all changed since that time, and that is getting better. And we see even today, modern day, with American Association for Justice, the leadership um, is uh, right now we have a female president, we have a female past president, immediate past president, and we have a female uh, president-elect. So things are changing, and that that's great. I'm very proud of that. Me too. So what do you think we can do to mentor, I guess, the next generation of, of women lawyers that are coming up so that, you know, in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we won't be having this conversation. It will be, what, uh, you know, what gender makes no difference. There's as many great female trial lawyers as there are great male trial lawyers. It's not an issue anymore. What do, what do we need to do to get there? Well, um, what we need to do is, again, it starts with mentoring. So we have to mentor the young female attorneys coming out of law school. It also start, It also um, involves um, giving opportunities to female members of the bar. So opportunities to showcase their leadership potential by, you know, assigning them to committees, um, assigning them to committees that have to. You have to, you know put in the hours to do the projects, also to train them in how to be a, a trial lawyer. Trial lawyer um, you know, is quickly becoming a dinosaur. There are many 
many articles written about the dying jury trial uh, or the vanquishing jury trial. I mean, they've been there was a study done by the Middle District um, Court here in Pennsylvania about the vanishing jury trial, and other um, district courts have written about that. So the skills needed to be a trial lawyer are um, very important in our society, and we have to make sure that the future generations of lawyers have the have the skills needed to to be a professional and to be a great trialer. And we can only do that by giving them opportunity, by giving them training, by sending them to seminars, which we know that will help um, cultivate them and help grow their skills. And certainly that's what I I do in my own practice, and I hope other people do. Um, again, women have to be given the opportunity to not only serve in the, the role of second chair, but then to be groomed to serve in the role of first chair at trial. Uh, and I'm trying to groom female lawyers, actually at our firm, not just because I want to make the world a better place, but selfishly, if I have a lawyer at my firm and I'm paying them, I want them to produce. You know, there's a business aspect too. I, you know, to hold back an employee or potential partner is just a bad economic move. You're not getting the best you can out of a person, and it's bad for their career and for society and for everything else. So I appreciate that advice because I'm trying to apply it, and I'm probably going to be asking for your help. Uh, we actually have a young woman who's a named partner at our firm, and my other partner is a, a woman. So we're trying to get them more involved in AHA and other organizations. They're speaking in Texas, and so hopefully uh, we're going to be able to get them more on a national stage, and we'd really like your help doing that. Congratulations. Yeah, well, we've been we've been blessed, and you know, when you hire the best people, you tend to hire about fifty-fifty. That's true. Well, we have six women lawyers in my office. Now you beat me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I have you beat my goal. Uh, g give me another year. Give me another year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm lucky. I'm in a partnership mm -hmm. with my brothers and sisters. So, um, and my cousin Julia was. Julia Munley was here for 16 years. She just um, took a position on the trial court bench, so we lost her, but we did uh, replace her with um, two women, and two young women. So one is out of law school, just past the bar, and the other is three years out of law school. She just came off a judicial clerkship. So That's great. Anything else you want to talk about before we wind up? No, the only thing I wanted to add was, and I think I said it in the beginning, that, you know, I'm the oldest of six children. And so, you know, th that tells you a little bit about my personality. Um, the oldest of six children, you know, from an Irish Catholic family, I tend to be a little bit bossy, with, especially with my brothers and sisters who work here. So, Okay, you said you practice others. How many of you guys practicing together, brothers and sisters? So there are my three brothers, Bob, Dan, and Chris, and my sisters, Caroline and Bernie. My sister Bernie is an attorney, but she does our marketing and 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 that sort of thing. So she's not actually practicing law, but she is part of the law firm. And where are you as far as birth order with those with the six kids? I am number one. 
So I'm from. I'm the eldest child too, and I'm just I'm the eldest child too, and I'm wondering how how do you think being the first of six has affected you and how you've approached your career? So being the first of six, um, as you know, since you're the eldest, um, you tend to be a little bit bossy since things had to get done when you have that many kids, and you know my parents would uh, sort of put a lot on me as the oldest, and so. Um, you know, I got used to multitasking. I got used to getting results, running, you know, getting my brothers and sisters to do stuff. And that, I mean, that basically continues to this day. I mean, I, as the oldest, I really, if I went out and had to do something, I really couldn't say, oh, I can't do it. I would just get it done. I think that really carries into my career because I never have a sense that something is too hard or or a case is too difficult, or a judge is too difficult. I, I always have the attitude, well, you know, I can get the job done. I'm going to get the job done. Um, I don't care how difficult the judge is. I don't how, care how difficult the county is in terms of the lack of jury verdicts. It's I'm going to get the job done. It's going to change, um, and I'm going to do the best job I can. So I think that just basically carried being the eldest child certainly um, helped my career a little bit, I guess, gave me a little grit. Well, if someone's listening to this and they like what they hear, if someone wants to talk to you about consulting with a case, either a client or a lawyer that wants wants to uh, bring you in on a case, how would they get a hold of you? So they can um, email me at mmunley at com, or they can give me a call. At what number? Uh, 570 Three four six seven four zero one. And is your website Munley.com if somebody wants to just kind of check out and learn more about you? Yes, my website is Munley.com. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Marilyn Munley. I always like talking to Marianne because she's such a sincere and genuine person and she really cares about her clients and our profession. Uh, she also talked to us about how we can mentor female attorneys, encourage them to become trial lawyers, which is a topic I really want to bring attention to on this podcast. I mean, we are really missing out on so many potentially great trial lawyers because, you know, we have such a small population of female trial lawyers and there are so many talented women out there that we're not bringing into the profession. So I hope we can change that. Be sure to join us next time. We're going to have an attorney, Morgan Matson. Uh, Matson is a headhunter. He's the founder of a company called Preferred Counsel, which finds lawyers and paralegals for law firms. Uh, as an owner of a small law firm, I've learned a lot, and I've actually learned a lot the hard way about how to find good lawyers and the right lawyers that are going to be the right fit for your firm. Um, I've unfortunately learned a lot of things the hard way uh, by finding people that, that we weren't the right fit for them or they weren't the right fit for us. Uh, Morgan's got a lot of great advice on how to hire, how to grow your firm, and especially how we smaller firms can compete with the bigger firms when you know we can't necessarily pay what they pay, but we have a lot more to offer and can be a lot more creative about how we pay, and he's got some great ideas on that. So thanks for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing hosts and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. 
visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Callan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.